The following Dharma discourse was given by Jeffrey Shugan Arnold at Zen Mountain Monastery. Shugan Roshi is the head of the Mountains and Rivers Order and abbot of the monastery. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmn.org. Thank you for listening. This is from the Vimalakirti Sutra. Then the Buddha said to the Bodhisattva of Wisdom, Manjushri, Manjushri, go to the Lachavi Vimalakirti to inquire about his illness. Upon arriving, Manjushri said, Good sir, is your condition tolerable? Are your physical elements not disturbed? Is your sickness diminishing? The Buddha asks about you. If your trouble is slight, slight discomfort, slight sickness, if your distress is light, if you're cared for, strong and at ease, without self-reproach, and if you're living in touch with the supreme happiness. And then Manjushri said, Householder, whence came this sickness of yours? How long will it continue? How does it stand? How can it be alleviated? And Vimalakirti said, Manjushri, my sickness comes from ignorance and the thirst for existence, and it will last as long as do the sicknesses of all living beings. Were all living beings to be free from sickness, I also would not be sick. Why? For the Bodhisattva, the world consists only of living beings, and sickness is inherent in living in the world. Were all living beings free of sickness, a Bodhisattva would be free of it. For example, Manjushri, it's like when the child of a parent or set of parents is sick. Both the parents become sick on account of the sickness of the child. And the parents will suffer as long as their only child does not recover from their sickness. And so, Manjushri, the Bodhisattva loves all living beings as if each were their only child. They become sick when they are sick and are cured when they are cured. You ask me, Manjushri, whence comes my sickness? The sicknesses of the Bodhisattvas arise from great compassion. This is taken from a, a sutra that's very important in Mahayana Buddhism and the Zen tradition, Tibetan Buddhist tradition. And it centers around a non-historical, a historical figure, Vimalakirti, who was said to have been at the, lived at the time of the Buddha, was the lay person, was said to have been enlightened in a, in a way that was equal to the Buddha. And in this sutra, he's sick. And the Buddha asks all of his disciples one by one to go and pay a sick call to Vimalakirti. And none of them want to do it because Vimalakirti has, has encountered each of the Buddha's disciples at various points along the road and has basically, I don't know if scolded is the right word, but basically taken them on and sort of pointed to the ways in which their practice or their understanding is insufficient, is slight, is not quite on track. And so he's a very formidable figure. So none of them want to go. But finally, Manjushri, the Bodhisattva of Wisdom, agrees to go. And so this is the beginning of their dialogue in which Manjushri inquires into the nature of Vimalakirti's sickness. And so through the ages, the Buddha is sometimes likened to a physician who recognized that there is an essential human illness, dukkha, delusion, and that arises from a cause, craving, thirst, grasping, attachment. 
but that it can be alleviated. There's a good prognosis. And then there's a treatment, the Eightfold Path. And so that way of characterizing the Buddha's teaching and his, his um, efforts is a way of looking at what we're doing. I talked earlier yesterday about the importance of the three aspects of training, developing samadhi, working with calming the restlessness of the mind and body, and all of the sort of historical accumulated mm, emotions and beliefs and assumptions, everything that we rely upon so heavily and that are the basis of our reactivity and our, uh, the way we go about things. And so calming that and bringing that into a state of stability and groundedness, pliancy, so that we can use it, this body and mind, and then cultivating wisdom, prajna. And then all along we're developing compassion, bringing forth compassion. Dogen said in this very famous, well-used um, section of the Genjo Koan, to study the Buddha way is to study the self, to study, to study oneself is to forget the self. And so there he's pointing to realizing the nature of the self, that the self is empty. He's not just talking about a moment when we are not aware of ourselves or that our concentration becomes strong and we're not sort of sitting in our self, sense of self. He's talking about actually having enlightened, being enlightened to the nature of the self as empty. And in forgetting oneself, we are enlightened by the 10,000 things. So here we could say he's referring to, it's not just enough to liberate ourselves, but we have to liberate all things, all of phenomena, all of creation, from the ways in which we put all things in bondage in the same way that we do with ourselves. And then to be enlightened by the 10,000 things is to be freed from one's body and mind and those of others. We can think of that as fulfilling our vow to alleviate the suffering. To free one's body and mind and those of others. And so, the first noble truth I spoke about on Friday night, we have to, to practice, we have to come into contact with and encounter and acknowledge that in certain ways everything is okay, and in another way things are not okay. We can have everything we need and be miserable, be unhappy, be in anguish, be suffering. And so to acknowledge that, and not just to acknowledge it, because we can acknowledge that and then just bury it, or deflect it, or suppress it, but to actually acknowledge it and wonder and, and, and want to attend to that, to do something. To be free from clinging, we chant, we must be free from greed. But the Buddha said that craving, grasping, clinging is sort of the, the essential way in which we create our unhappiness. I came across an article just recently, I think earlier this week, in the Times that I thought was interesting. And it's written by a, a, a psychologist. And it says... He started a minute. He was talking really about what's going on in the Middle East and the war and conflict and the, the, the brutality and the complexity and 
saying that many people are feeling defeated by this. As we read about it, as we are concerned about it, we worry about it, we argue about it. And then he says, and people wonder, how could anyone just go on as if nothing was happening? And a common conclusion in that is that people don't care, right? But he says, but inaction isn't always caused by apathy. It can also be the product of empathy. More specifically, it can be the result of what psychologists call empathic distress, hurting for others while feeling unable to help. He says, empathic distress explains why many people have checked out in the wake of the tragedies that we experience in the world. The small gestures, whatever we might do, can seem futile. And he said originally that this kind of state, the psychological state, was labeled compassion fatigue and was described as sort of the cost of caring. But later, it came, there were researchers who came to see that that was really not understanding correctly. It was a misnomer. He says that caring itself is not really costly. That's not really the problem. What drains us is not merely witnessing others' pains, but feeling incapable of alleviating a sense of helplessness. In times of sustained anguish, empathy is a recipe for more distress, and in some cases, even depression. And he says, what we really need instead is compassion. Now, bear in mind, I don't know anything about this author other than that, you know, what the little bio said. So I don't know if they have any experience or understanding of Buddhism. Let's presume not, right? Because he's coming from a psychological perspective, using psychological research and sort of the instruments and the, the ways and means of that particular field. But to look at the, the findings or what he's talking about, and then to relate that to how Buddhism understands this. Then he goes on to say, although they're used interchangeably, empathy and compassion, they're not the same. Empathy absorbs others' emotions as your own. I'm hurting for you. I'm hurting because you're hurting. I see your pain and I feel pain. It's not yours, but I feel pained by your pain. And I think we all hopefully <laughs> know that experience. If we don't have empathy, we're, we're in trouble. But how, does it, how can it be problematic? He says, compassion focuses our actions on another's emotions, their experience, and says, I see that you're hearing, hurting. I recognize that. I'm in the presence of it, and I am here. He says, I am here for you. Compassion in Buddhism, we might say, I see that you're hurting, and I want to do something to help you. I want to help alleviate that. What can I do? And he goes on to say, there's a big difference between the two. Empathy is biased. It's something we usually reserve for those in our own group. And in that sense can be even a powerful force for war and atrocity. And if we just think of that as whether it's an identity group or whether it's just whoever I include in my circle, whoever I'm willing to include in my circle, I can have empathy for. Outside of that circle, likely not. And so in that way, he says it's biased. I spoke about this recently, and that in that, it's fickle, right? Because if I bring you in, inside of my circle, depending on how that goes, I can put you outside of my circle tomorrow. It's very conditional. 
and it's biased based on my own view, my decision, how I see you, how I regard you, if I regard you. And so this is, I think, important because it's sort of, we tend to think of empathy as a very important and necessary aspect of our human nature and our compassion. And, and it is, and it's not just an absolute thing, right? It's how do we use it? How is it being used? And so he says, goes on to say, another difference is that empathy makes us ache. And the neuroscientists even see that in brain scans. When the participants see someone suffering, it activates a neural network that would light up if they themselves were in pain. These kind of mirror neurons. It hurts, and when people can't help, they, can, they try to escape that pain by withdrawing. When I experience you in pain, and I, and I am now in hurting, and I can't do anything about that, then I withdraw, right, to, to deal with the pain that I'm experiencing because I can't do anything to diminish your pain. And then he goes on to say the way to, to deal with this is to, they talk about some work they did with participants to respond with compassion rather than empathy to focus not on sharing others' pain, but on noticing the feelings that they're having and offering comfort. Again, what can I do? And that's where compassion in Buddhism is, as I've said, is not a feeling. It's not just having a feeling, for instance, of empathy or caring, but it's actually wanting to alleviate the suffering because the feelings sometimes aren't there. But we can still act compassionately, even if we're not strongly driven. And that's particularly important when we're cultivating compassion. And we may feel lacking in compassion, particularly for certain peoples, and think, well, I can't actually do anything, or I'm, I can't be compassionate. I'm not compassionate until I have the feeling of compassion. And in Buddhism, that's not true. That's the power of an intention. That's the power of, of liturgy. That's the power of the four immeasurables, is that we can do these practices that invoke the wish for well-being and let that be as sincere as we can allow it to be, even if it feels, you know, weak, and that's authentic, that's genuine, it's honest. So we can be cultivating that compassion at the same time that we realize we're not really feeling terribly compassionate. And those are not in conflict. We're large enough to hold both of those aspects. And so they're basically teaching people to, in our practice, in our way of seeing things, to experience another's pain with detachment without getting entangled, without, in a sense, taking on another's pain. Because now you've got two people who are hurting and might be paralyzed, immobilized. And eventually one person, who has the, the person who is experiencing another's pain, gets weary of that or gets frightened by that or gets, you know, doesn't want to feel that way, and so withdraw. So he says, the most basic form of compassion is not assuaging distress, but acknowledging it. When we can't make people feel better, we can still, still make a difference by helping them to know that they are seen. And that also, he said, helps us to feel less helpless. 
And so we can think of all these different ways in which we relate to the things we experience near and far. We can be just apathetic. I see you, I don't feel anything, and I don't care. We can feel sympathy. I see that you're hurting, I don't feel anything, but I wish you weren't hurting. I mean, I do, I wish you weren't hurting, but it doesn't really move me. We can be empathic and actually feel that pain, and there's compassion, right? Where we're, we're in the presence of, we see, we recognize intimately. Detachment is not distant and want to do something. And that's empowering. And it also needs to be grounded. It needs to be grounded in what we can actually do and what we can't do. And that's one reason that the meditative practices that we have of cultivating compassion are so important. Because you can extend your wish for your compassion and wanting. So what you're doing in that moment is a heartfelt wish for happiness, for loving kindness, for gladness, for equanimity to anyone, anywhere, at any time, in any circumstance. They don't even have to be alive. They don't have to be born yet. In other words, the power of the mind is that you're not limited in any way. And in doing that, you're cultivating that degree of generosity, of compassion, of magnanimity, of caring, but without clinging, without grasping. But so when Vimla Kirti says, well, you know, I'm sick because all sentient beings are sick, is that just empathic distress? <laughs> right? Is he clinging to the suffering of others and creating his own clinging? Well, let's see. So at one point, Manjushi says, what sort is your sickness? Like, what is your sickness? And Vimla Kirti says, it is immaterial, and invisible. And Manjushri said, is it physical or mental? And Vimalakirti says, it's not physical, since the body itself is insubstantial, is not fixed, is not solid. And it's not mental because the nature of the mind is like an illusion, like a spark, like a cloud, like a momentary apparition. And again, not fixed, not solid, not a thing. And Manjushri says, well, which of the four main elements is disturbed? Earth, water, fire, air? And Vimalakirti says, I am sick only because the elements of living beings are disturbed by sicknesses. And so he's saying that his distress, his sickness, right, is not physical, it's not mental. There's something there but it's nothing that can be attached to. It's ultimately nothing that can be named. But it has power. Look at what it did. It drew all of the Buddha's disciples to his bed to inquire in the sutra. Right? And so in that way, Vimalakirti, being a bodhisattva, is using the sicknesses of all living beings to bring attention to the Buddha's disciples of about the sickness of all living beings and making it very personal. And so when we consider our zazen, 
the very fundamental and sort of ordinary aspects of our zazen, we practice attention, mindfulness, knowing, experiencing your mind and body, the states that come and go, mental, physical, mixed, everything, whatever appears, whatever you might call it, knowing it intimately, seeing it's the experience, the shape, the size, the texture, the quality, not analyzing, not naming, not getting embroiled in it, seeing it directly, but without clinging. What is that helping us to do? We think, well, it's helping us to calm the mind, to let go of thoughts, yes. It's helping us to calm the sort of reactive emotions and thoughts that we have, responses to things, yes. So we're untying the knot of our karma. We're learning to tolerate moments of discomfort that arise by not suppressing or becoming numb, but also by not getting entangled in stories and explanations. We're not judging. Is this right or wrong? Should I be feeling this? Is this appropriate? Am I a good student for doing this? Am I not a good student? Is this succeeding? Is this this what failure looks like? We're letting go of all of that. Non-grasping, non-abiding. What is that training us for? How do we be in a world in which there is suffering that is overwhelming? Bear in mind that the great Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva the preeminent, quintessential, compassionate being exploded her head one bright, sunny day, being overwhelmed by the suffering. So if she can be overwhelmed, but then she kind of put herself back together again with some help, even gained a few heads in the process, couldn't hurt, (laughs) and carried on. And so to see that what we're training in, in just the very first moment of Zazen, is exactly what Vimalakirti is pointing to, is what this psychologist, in their own language, from their own perspective, is counseling, will be more helpful But how in in realizing that all things are empty, mind, body, suffering itself has no intrinsic quality, within anger, there's nothing within the experience of anger that we can find that is some substantial entityness of anger. There's not a thing, a nut, a nugget, a substance that we can touch. When we look, when we look, when we look deeply, what we find is nothing. And yet, there's anger. But how is that not a form of nihilism? It's empty, nothing exists, doesn't matter. The guardian says something is there, but what is it? And so Manjushri asks Vimalakirti, well, how then should a bodhisattva help another person who is ill? And here, of course, the illness is the illness of our delusion, of our grasping, of our, all of our unhappiness. 
And Vimalakirti says, and I'll par- paraphrase here, that you should tell the person that their body is impermanent, but don't reject it. The body is impermanent, but don't reject it. That the body is, has suffering, that we experience suffering, but don't encourage them to find escape in a meditative state or an experience of emptiness. That the body is selfless, is empty of any abiding self, substance, or soul, but that living beings should be developed. The self is empty, and we should still develop ourselves and develop others. That the body is peaceful, and here body means the whole thing, your whole thing. Your body, your mind, heart, everything. That the body is peaceful, but in that, don't seek an absolute calm. Don't try and create that, turn that peacefulness into a place, a cage, a box, a room that you go in and never leave. In other words, practice the middle path. See everything. Acknowledge everything. Avalokiteshvara realizes mind. All things have the same nature. They're empty of any solidity, anything that we could attach to, any fixedness. Everything is workable. Everything is in motion. Everything is change. How is it changing? How can we help it change? How can we be ourselves changing as we are in such a way that it brings forth more wisdom and compassion? And she awakens the heart. Nothing is forsaken. Nothing is ignored. Nothing is abandoned. Nothing is disregarded. The middle way. The Buddha said, this body does not belong to you, nor to anyone else. We could say the same thing about our emotions, our thoughts, our memories, our experiences, our sensations, the self. It does not belong to you nor anyone. It should be regarded as a result of former actions. Actions of the past, karmic actions, intentional actions, bear consequence. Those consequences accumulate in what Buddhism calls you and me. This karmic body is a result of these former actions that have been constructed Actions is something we do, right? An action is something we do. There is an activity that is happening. It's constructed. It doesn't just happen. And is intended, the Buddha said. I talked about this yesterday, how karma is intention, the Buddha said. What we're concerned about is those actions that arise out of intentions, which is desire, I want something, rather than unintentional actions that we commit or that happen in the world, not because they don't have consequence, but they don't have the same kind of karmic weight that becomes what binds us and holds us and drags us down. This body, this mind, this experience, this suffering does not belong to you or anyone else. It's the result of former actions that have been constructed and intended and is now to be experienced. All of that, this complex, this extraordinary 
symphony of conditions coming together into this moment. And what, are, what is the Buddha teaching that we should do? Experience it. It is now to be experienced. And now it's gone. Forever. Never to return. And now there's another one. And that's gone. Never to return. And then another one. And that's what we call life. Living. And so when we miss the now to be experienced, we're kind of missing the whole thing. So why do we practice being mindful, being attentive, bringing that into sitting, into walking, into prostrating, into bowing, into having a meal, into sitting on the toilet, into brushing your teeth? Why would Zen masters of the past pay such attention to such ordinary mundane activities? If we can't do it then, it's unlikely we're going to be able to do it when the roof is falling in. Right? When all hell is breaking loose. When the ground has just dropped out from under your feet. And so we train for every moment, for today, because today's the day. Right? It's here. And we also train for every successive day. And to be able to be in such a world where there is quite a bit of unhappiness. Greed, anger, and delusion abound. Pride and jealousy, divisiveness. You know the list is long. The actors are many. How do we live in this world and not just go dead? Which can seem at times a very reasonable option, right? Just tune it out. But that's what I found so interesting about this article, was that it, it's helping us to understand what may be perceived as apathy, but is really just not knowing how to hold the fact that we do care. And we so want to do something. And there are so many things we are just not in control of. And that has always been true. And Buddhism recognizes that. And that's, again, one of the reasons why these practices that are within our control, your mind, your body, and can be extended to those beyond our control as a way of offering, as a way of transforming ourselves and cultivating compassion, but also as as a way of offering something that admittedly is not measurable, but it has a profound effect on feeling not powerless, which is a devastating kind of feeling. And it's a signal, It's, it's telling us that there is something going on that we want, but we don't know how to hold that. And to think about how, of course, we live in a time of such great sort of unprecedented change, which is probably always the way it seems in every generation. Great unrest in which there is so much grasping at false narratives, false certainties, just outright deceptions and so on. And so, of course, in the midst of change, there's fear. We're creatures of comfort. 
you know, we recently changed where our cat's, Sophie's water dish, used to be next to the food. She wasn't really drinking any water. And somebody said, well, you know, when they're both next to each other, food and water, they don't like to drink the water. I don't know why. So we moved the water. A change. Several days, she didn't drink. And then suddenly she started drinking. Right? Change is weird. Right? It's scary because we don't know what's happening now. And that's what can make the change of practice so difficult. Because even if we're the habits we formed are our misery, they provide a certain amount of comfort because they're familiar. And to leave that takes some courage. And then to think about how, you know, our influence, we live with industries and technologies that are made to create fantasies for us. So we don't have to deal with this world. And to make those fantasies more and more real. So I was thinking about that, and I looked up virtual. Right? What does that mean? Almost or nearly as described, but not completely. So I thought, okay, how's that as, a, as an invitation to life? Am I satisfied with that? I'd like an almost or nearly but not completely life. Almost or nearly what exactly? What I want? The Buddha said the nature of dukkha, the basis of our unhappiness, is wanting something and not getting it. Getting something and not wanting it. Having to be with somebody you don't really want to be with. Wanting to be with somebody, but you can't. Kind of very ordinary stuff. So I can create a virtual world. I don't have to deal with any of that. So I get what I want all the time. I get to be with who I want all the time. And I don't have to deal with all of you people and your messes. And it's not complete, but you know. Master Dogen says, the Buddha Dharma aims high. Really what that means, it just, it aims right at you. It aims right at us and says, listen, you have but a nature. You have the mind and the body of an enlightened being. All of this stuff, we have to face it, we have to practice it, we have to understand it deeply. And all the while knowing it's actually not necessary. It's created, it's constructed, it's intended. It doesn't have to be. And then Vimalakirti goes on to say something very important, and I'll close with this. He says, it's very important that we not fall into what he calls sentimental compassion. He says, just as my sickness is unreal, is essentially empty of anything fixed, it's not absolute, it's not a thing, it's in constant state of change, is unreal and non-existent. So the sicknesses of all living beings are this way. And yet, we're sick, we're ill, we're deluded. Through such considerations, the Bodhisattva arouses great compassion towards all living beings without falling into any sentimental compassion. Clinging, grasping. 
I so see that you are suffering, and I so have the solution. I know what you need. I'm going to fix you. The great compassion that falls into sentimentally purposive views, attached views, only exhausts the bodhisattva. Empathic distress. When compassion is based in not detachment, but grasping, clinging, right? It's exhausting. We exhaust ourselves. It's very hard to continue. And so it, it seems natural, com- compassion fatigue. Yeah, it's fatiguing. But what's really happening? Is it the caring? Is it the, is it the caring itself? Or is it how I am caring? And that's really the... the the inner chamber of it all. How to care deeply. How to really want to live a life that is meaningful and has a good influence. And how to keep turning towards a world that is, as the Buddha said, like a house on fire. There's so many teachings about not being discouraged defeated, right? Because that's always been a possibility. It's always been, you know, a way in or out or... And so that's the power of the middle way, is that we we forsake nothing, recognize what we can and cannot do, what we can and cannot control. And then work with all that we have, which is so much more than we know. This mind, these thoughts, so many of the things that seem to bind us. In practice, we learn to actually liberate them from their bondage, our clinging, our attachments, our fear. And then they become so powerful. And so the Vimalakirti says, Because of all of this, the bodhisattva should participate in liberation, not in bondage. A simple invitation. Let's participate in our liberation, not in our bondage. Right? You could probably throw a party for all those interested in liberation, not bondage. Lots of people would show up. Lots of people would show up. But he said, participate, not just want, not just dream about, not just hope that one day, but actually participate, be an active participant in our liberation and not in our bondage. The numbers might diminish a little, (laughs) but those who show up, it's a good group, good party. So thank you for those of you who joined us for this weekend. I hope it was helpful. I think we all hope, all the residents monastics hope it was helpful. And hopefully it has helped you to move forward in some way, to participate. So I'll end with a poem. This great heart of compassion, gentle as falling snow, strong as the August sun, The snow doesn't think I will blanket the land. 
The sun doesn't know it shines in all directions. Watch the winter songbirds in summer and in winter. They know how to meet the need without knowing. They know how to meet the need without knowing. Thanks so much for listening. For meditation supplies such as cushions, incense, liturgical instruments, dharma books, and more, visit monasterystore.org. Support for your spiritual practice at home.